This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, with me as usual, my colleague Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein, uh, back after a, a week's absence. Hi, Matt. Hi, Ezra. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Ezra. I'm back. What's new? After a week's absence. Oh, nothing. Things have been real calm. <laughs> <laughs> not much happening here. Uh, but I can't even tell the audience why they're not calm. I'd say check back to Vox in the next two to three weeks. Pretty cryptic. Yeah. All right. All right. I'm, something I'm, big. I'm, I'm increasing anticipation. You know what else big. is big? Welfare reform. Ooh, I see how you did that. Yeah. There was. It was huge, huge, huge news in, the 90s. in 1996. <laughs> <laughs> but w- before we talk about that, what else are we going to talk about today? I think we'll um, we'll talk about some Supreme Court decisions that like literally Ooh. just happened, but for hot. you, they happened 24 hours ago. Hot Supreme Court decisions. And then we have a hot, hot nonprofit research paper of the week from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation That's and Urban exciting. Institute. I'm excited about that paper. Oh, well, you just have to wait till the end of the episode for it Damn then. It. So let's let's do some welfare reform and get to it. All right. So I, I was excited to talk about welfare reform today for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, Dylan Matthews at Vox did a published his 8,000 word opus on welfare reform, and I learned a lot about it. It's magisterial. Magisterial, astonishing, jaw-dropping genius. It's magisterial. You should really read it. Um, the title of it is, If the Goal Was to Get Rid of Poverty, We Failed, The Legacy of the 1996 Welfare Reform, which I think gives a uh, intuition about its thesis. But I, I think the reason I was interested in talking about it today is also that welfare reform is an interesting policy in that the two parties' view of it has really diverged. So in 1996, when the bill passes, and and we should talk a little bit about the circumstances of that passage, but in 1996, when the bill passes, it is something that both sides view a little tepidly. Bill Clinton gives his speech talking about its passage. He had vetoed earlier versions of this bill, and he says in the speech, some parts of this bill still go too far. The bill still cuts deeper than it should in nutritional assistance, mostly for working families and children. So he kind of says, look, I'm signing this, but I don't think it's great. It's just better than not signing it. And Republicans, too, they wanted something much stronger, much tougher. They wanted to take that model and bring it to Medicaid and food stamps. They were happy they got movement here, but they did not get everything they wanted. We are now roughly 20 years later, and welfare reform has gone from something that I think certainly in the early 2000s, both sides saw as a pretty big achievement. Bill Clinton even published a New York Times op-ed touting the success of welfare reform to now it's something that Republicans are using as the model for virtually all of their major policy reforms. And Democrats are really abandoning. Uh, Senator Sanders has been very critical of welfare reform. He opposed it at the time. He opposes it now. And Hillary Clinton has been, you know, fairly upfront that she thinks it's been quite flawed, particularly, she would argue, I think, in implementation. But more broadly, my sense of the currents in the Democratic Party around this 
are that welfare reform is increasingly looked at as a poor policy. Maybe not a mistake to reform welfare. A lot of people think that was needed. I'm probably one of them. But what was actually done was not a good bill. And the reason I think people, a lot of folks have come to that conclusion is the Great Recession. That a lot of the problems of welfare reform were masked by the incredibly strong labor market of the 1990s. But then when we got into the recession, what we've seen is a sharp rise of truly extreme poverty in this country. And we've seen that basically what we've done is create a safety net that includes no real form of cash assistance for people who cannot get a job. So can you, Ezra, since you know this literature better than I do, when we talk about welfare reform, what kind of changes are we talking about? Welfare was a policy that it had a lot of different lives before reform, but it was a policy that fundamentally was a cash assistance grant to people with very low incomes. And in that, it was pretty much a loan. I mean, you would sign up for welfare and you would get a check. When People with, with children. People with children, yes, Which, which was important. So it was not everybody. This winds up being important, I think, to both sides of the politics of it. From a liberal point of view, welfare was about protecting kids from consequences of being born to unlucky parents and that to cut welfare families off is very punitive to children who have clearly not done anything wrong. But part of the politics of welfare reform as it emerged was this idea that we had this underclass of unmarried women having babies, not working, and getting a check from the government to have babies and not work. I think when liberals attack welfare reform, they are sometimes not fully appreciating the optics and politics of old AFDC. You couldn't get it if you had a job. And AFDC is. Uh, AFDC, aid to families with dependent Right, so this is what welfare reform is replacing. It's what what was reform, Mm -hmm. right? It was a program that, in effect, you couldn't get if you had a job and you couldn't get if you didn't have children. And if you got a job, it made it often made work very unprofitable. It had a 100% phase-out rate. So you would begin making money and you would lose more money than you made in welfare benefits. Dylan puts this really well. He says basically there were three criticisms made of, of AFDC. One was that it caused poor adults who could work to not work. The second was that it caused dependency rather than being a temporary safety net. Some people embraced welfare as a way of life. And the third is it encouraged having children out of wedlock and discouraged marriage. And Dylan writes that the first of these claims that it caused portals who could work to not work was definitely true. The evidence was ironclad on that. The second that for some people it ended up being how they made money, they just kind of got stuck in it, um, was kind of true. There was some evidence. And the third that encouraged having children out of wedlock and discouraged marriage, there might have been a little bit of effect there, but it was was very, very, very marginal. But it's really important to stop here for a minute. It's something you just brought up, Matt. There was a liberal version of welfare reform and there was a conservative version of welfare reform. And what functionally happened is that Bill Clinton began with a liberal version of welfare reform and ended up passing the conservative version. So the the key person here, the key player here is David Elwood. And David Elwood had been – he was a Harvard professor and he ended up joining the Clinton administration. But he was the nation's leading expert on welfare. And he was a defender of the program but he thought that it needed to be reformed. And what he proposed is a program that had a work requirement in it, a time limit or a work requirement. But it had a bunch of other things too. Um, really importantly, it had a job guarantee. 
his idea was that if you were going to have a work requirement, if you're going to say, hey, if you want to stay on this program, you're able-bodied. After two years, you have to stop working. Well, we needed to make sure you could actually get a job. And so either you got a job or the state would give you a subsidized minimum wage job. That was a really interesting theory. Um, that was a theory not of just pushing people into a labor market that may not have a place for them, but of giving people jobs as a way to do skill building. Uh, that theory got completely dropped from the actual bill because it would have been very expensive. And so what you ended up having was a policy where we gave states less money, told them they had to get people into work or get their case rolls down. Uh, they, they, they could actually fulfill the requirement either way. They could have more people working or fewer people on the rolls and the government really didn't care which. We gave them a lot of flexibility in how to spend the money and they ended up often using that flexibility quite poorly. Uh, they stopped spending the money to a first approximation on welfare recipients. And then we said like, yeah, you've got to get a job, but we had no way of guaranteeing they could get a job. And so in the really hot economy of the 90s, a lot of people were able to get jobs and a lot of people did end up better off. And as part of this, we expanded the earned income tax credit and we expanded other things we were doing for the working poor. So we really moved the focus of government anti-poverty policy to the poor who could find work. We subsidized their income dramatically. But what we didn't have anything for were the poor who couldn't find work. In the 90s, there were a number of them, obviously, but it was a little bit overshadowed by the tight economy. But by the time of the Great Recession and now in the aftermath of the Great Recession, we see how large a group that is. Um, the, there are many people for whom the labor market just does not have a reasonable place. And we currently have nothing for them. We did not pass a version of welfare reform that made good on the other side of that, which is that not just – you need to work, but you will be able to work. So there are two things now that I see um, liberal thinkers on this really gravitating towards. One is an effort to try to deal with the work requirement itself, maybe through guaranteed jobs, maybe through government-provided jobs. And the other is an effort to try to deal with children because you have a tremendous number of children. Uh, Kathy Eden and her co-author in $2 a day uh, estimates about two, 3 million children in this country live on less than $2 a day in cash income, which is fucking crazy. And doing something like a universal child allowance to directly attack that kind of child poverty because it isn't the kid's fault if a parent can't find a job. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I think that's important from Dylan's piece about understanding kind of why these changes mattered is that, so I think one of the ideas going into welfare reform, like you mentioned, Ezra, was that we're going to encourage work at some point. There was that we're going to guarantee work. So you definitely have seen an uptick in work, that you have more people working. The thing is those dollars have not replaced the dollars they're getting from welfare. And I think, you know, folks' perspectives might differ on if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but it is true that you have more poverty now because that welfare was a better deal for the recipients who were getting it through the mid-1990s, that they have found jobs, but it appears that those jobs, either some people haven't found jobs or the jobs they've found are not sufficient to replace the benefits they were getting from the government. And then that ties to the issue you're raising where a lot of the problems are really contrasted in like very deep poverty where you see that poverty increasing and especially deep poverty, people living on less than $2 a day, which um, Eden's book is fascinating and terrifying and I think highly recommended by many Vox staff when you know she talks about what you need to do. You have people selling blood, like doing all these like really terrible, crazy things to get by and really is the headline of Dylan's piece that one of the hopes was to reduce poverty by encouraging people to work. And it seems like it's pretty clear in the academic consensus that that hasn't happened. 
I, I think it's important when, when you're thinking about this stuff to understand how costly it is to actually generate an equivalent living standard for a parent of young children by moving them into the labor market because you're talking by definition about parents. So if you give cash to a non-working mother, then she can use that cash to buy food, pay rent, whatever is, is like that. I mean also there's, there's other programs. Um, if you have that woman go into a very low-wage job, then her wages need to cover the cost of childcare. Mm -hmm. And then what you have is the delta there but between that. So there's a little bit of a conflict between the common sense view to the extent that you want to help people, you would like to help them in a cost-effective way. And it's much cheaper to pay mothers some money to sustain themselves than to get them enough money to have their children taken care of and then to also sustain themselves on top of that. But there's a conflict between that viewpoint, though, and then the sort of values-ish kind of thing, which is that if we have a country in which most parents are working, mothers and fathers, and are paying for childcare, right? It seems odd. You're like not participating in mainstream American life if you are just getting a check from the government and not working. Whereas no matter how costly workarounds and subsidies and, and things like that are, if you're working and your kid's in some childcare and you're stressed about work-family balance, you are participating in a version of normal middle-class family life for America, particularly when I talk to policymakers on the Democratic side, people who have been involved in a very practical way in this. They are acutely sensitive to the political differences of things that from a, a wonky 50,000 mm -hmm. foot point of view sound really, really similar. But so like money spent on subsidizing child care promotes work and the integration of low-income people into middle-class mainstream, whereas cash child allowances promotes non-work and a sort of divergence between the low-income lifestyle and the middle-class lifestyle. And then similarly, when you're giving people Medicaid, like health coverage, in-kind benefits, then it's like, well, you're helping people out with a certain something. Whereas when you're cutting them checks, you're giving them welfare. And, and it is strongly believed by people in the Obama administration, by veterans of the Clinton administration, that it matters enormously to the politics. That if you can give in-kind assistance, particularly to people who are working, that there is a robust politics around that, that the American people are generous in mind and spirit and are willing to do a lot to help people that way. But that if you try to give cash to people who are not working, that people become very mean-spirited and, and stingy about it. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it it's important to their thinking because if they're wrong about that, then they're like cataclysmically misallocating resources. It was definitely true in the 90s. I mean, I think that's what we can say. So it's worth going backwards a bit here. Welfare, or the, the program we think of as welfare, it emerges during the 1930s. It's part of the New Deal. And as Dylan writes, the purpose of the program at the beginning was to keep women with children from having to work. Widows. It grew right. out of widows programs, out of mother's pensions. If you're divorced or single, though. 
you're not in. But it was much more than that, right? It, it was super narrowly targeted. Um, it was for white widows. It was like a population of white widows who people felt were deserving of aid and they were expected to stay home and raise children rather than enter the workforce. And then in the mid-20th century, there's a lot of really interesting activism around welfare. There are Supreme Court cases. There are sit-ins. There is sort of community organizing that really organizes people to go and get the, the benefits that they were eligible for. And what happens is while African-Americans never become a majority of people on welfare, they do become disproportionately heavy users of welfare. And certainly by the late 20th century, this becomes a very key feature of Republican rhetoric, Ronald Reagan and the welfare queen and so on. So one thing that happened here is that as the program became associated with non-whites and as it became associated particularly with urban areas where a lot of people were out of work, all of a sudden there was a desire for the program to do something it hadn't done before, which is be about getting people to work. When this program had begun as a way to keep people from having to work while they raise children. And I just – one of the difficult things and I think something that structures how you should think about the politics of welfare reform going forward is that you cannot separate what happened with welfare reform in the 90s from race. You, you just cannot. And I think one question is what are the valences politically of those proposals, right? If you do a universal child allowance, one reason people want to do it universal is to get away from that, to get away from that idea that it's for a very certain population. You can also argue potentially that the politics of race are just different in this country than they were in the 90s. And so something like welfare wouldn't be as toxic today. But we really did do a bait and switch on this. Like we had a policy that, you know, was for the white, quote unquote, deserving poor and that was built so they would not have to work so they could spend time raising their children. And then as it expanded to more non-white beneficiaries, all of a sudden we saw the fact that they were using that policy to spend time not working, raising children as some huge betrayal, as some tremendous grift. Part of why it gets so racialized is that this is tied up with notions about what good parenting looks like, which in turn gets necessarily tied up with sort of knee-jerk judgments about what other people are doing. And in the original conception of AFDC, you have old school America, overwhelmingly two-parent households. You have the working father and the non-working mother held up as like a normative ideal. And then like, well, what if dad dies? And so then we have the idea that, well, what ought to happen is the non-working mother ought to be able to continue to stay at home and do exactly what a good mother ought to be doing. And that if she was out there in the workplace and the kid was being watched by, you know, aunt so-and-so, that that would actually be less than optimal parenting. And then a lot about Americans society changes. You have many more never married mothers. You have many more working mothers, whether married or not. And you have a, a shift to the idea that a person who is having kids does not have a husband and does not have a job is acting very, 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 very irresponsibly. That like a lot of implicit and explicit social messaging at middle and upper class women is like all about absolutely what you do not do. You go to school, you go to college, you get a job, you establish your career, you find a husband, then you have kids. You know, at that point, if it fits your family finances, it's acceptable to stay home or work part time. But like everyone is supposed to be in it. And like most of the time you're going to be working, the kid's going to be in daycare. So you have this population that's suddenly left in the cracks and 
in part for racial reasons, you know, it becomes people's instinct to be like, wait a minute, this is terrible parenting. Not like, how great is it that for this relatively modest amount of money, we're able to provide all these kids with this optimal child rearing situation. But instead, it's like, this is a social disaster. We have catastrophe unfolding in our cities. The the slightest things of, of racial bias or anything else can really tip you off that cliff of judgment into like, we have a social catastrophe and there's there's a moral panic around this. Although I will say, you know, I think it's definitely developed more of a racial tinge to it. But if you do go back to the, you know, original version, this was just for women who were widowed, that women who were divorced, women who had babies out of wedlock, they weren't allowed on this program when it started. So in a way, it's liberalized towards people who have had babies in those situations. So I think it speaks to some longstanding American attitudes about the right way to have children that really like stretch decades back to when my grandmother was having children or when my grandmother was born about like, this is the right situation to have kids into and that we are going to help the people. Some of it almost seems like um, someone who's widowed, it seems like some of the attitude is, well, you well, you tried, you got the husband, like you did the right steps. Whereas it seems like some of the bias against those who were divorced or those, you know, had children out of wedlock is almost an idea about choice, that you made some decisions and that I'm not endorsing this view, but the view of the program seems to be you should be responsible for the decisions you make versus those that you have no control over, like widowhood. So both the old idea and the new idea, what they have in common is that if you do all the right things, which used to be get married, stay at home with the kids, and now is work full time, then we will help you out if bad luck, i.e. the death of your husband or a low marginal product of labor, is leaving you without as much money as you need, it used to be you could get old school AFDC check, or now you can get earned income tax credit. But there's always been this discomfort with the idea that you might deviate from some kind of normative pattern of social behavior, like get divorced or just not have a job, and that the government would help you be a social deviant. And like our notion of what would be highly deviant behavior used to be to be divorced and now is to be unemployed. But that's sort of been where the politics have been have been hitting always. And I think that the challenge for people, for liberals who would like to address this is how do you navigate that? And and one thing that's easy to do for like an internet hot take is to just say, well, we shouldn't have these norms. Let's just give everyone a check. These norms are dumb. And like, that's great. And one of the great things about the internet is that if 15% of people who see your take hit the thumbs up button on Facebook, <laughs> you'll go viral and, and it'll be amazing. But in, in politics, you do need a, need a majority. And I don't know that challenging work norms is going to be all that productive. So that's where you get to the jobs guarantee, which is it's hard to work out a program that will do that exactly. But if you did it, then you would get money to everyone and it would cost money. You'd have to do the work, but it would achieve an outcome that I think everyone would feel pretty good about. Well, and this is, I think, one reason it's important to be pretty clear that welfare was in 1996 a a really badly flawed program, that the people who really approved of its aims wanted to reform it, the people who really opposed its aims wanted to reform it. 
And so I think it's worth being fairly clear about what happened when we did reform it, because, you know, there are those who think the entire operation was misguided, that Clinton should never have compromised with the Republican Congress. Then there are those who think that they sort of got the, the technical details wrong. And I think you can group the set of things that has happened within the program uh, in, a, in a couple of different buckets. One was that it got turned into basically a block grant given to states. So we took the money that was being spent, and it used to be that the federal government would match whatever the state was spending. And now it moved down to the federal government gives a uh, constrained amount of money that states can use with a lot more flexibility however they want. And there's a great uh, line in Dylan's piece where we one of the experts says, we ended up creating welfare for states, not people. So states got one money that they had full control over. Two, that money stopped growing with need. It began, I, I don't remember exactly what the rate of growth is, but it stayed pretty steady and is now decreased, in terms of its real value, decreased by about a third over the last decade or so. And, and three, we gave states a lot of flexibility to do what they wanted with it. And so they often would move it to goals and priorities that we would not think of as traditional welfare. I mean, there's there's instances of it supporting crisis pregnancy centers. There's a lot of it that went to education. And you can argue about the worth of these different priorities, but they're not what welfare was intended to do. I think when this was being put together conceptually, I think the image of the block grant that was sold was like, look, we have a lot of different ideas about how best to help people and move them into work and do different things. So we're going to give states flexibility to experiment. Right. And that maybe did happen. One of the things that happened in the 90s was the labor market was good. Another thing that happened was that state tax revenues were very flush. Uh -huh. But then when you started getting into harder times – one thing that I just think becomes inescapably tempting was to use the money not necessarily for things that are bad. Like a lot of it's been used for like child abuse yeah. relief, you know, like necessary government functions, but in effect to plug budgetary holes. Yeah, it became a slush fund. Right. Like a slush fund for activities of a certain type, but a slush fund. And and I think that one thing that's really interesting about this is in Dylan's piece, you actually have a lot of Republican welfare experts saying like, hey, like this went wrong. Like we need to tighten it. We should tighten this even now. But another thing that I think happened is that Republicans looked at them like this really worked. Like this is a great way to take down a government program. And I don't mean that from even a – like I don't mean that cynically. I, it's really, really, really hard in American politics to get rid of existing programs because they have all these beneficiaries. And so taking a vote where you end up hurting all these people is really difficult. And I think one reason it's become such a popular model for Medicaid, for food stamps, for other things is that for Republicans who see these policies as on a path of inexorable growth – that this proved to be one of the very few effective models in American life for how do you bring one of the, how do you shrink one of these programs, which is that you turn it over to states so the decisions begin to be made on a state level, not by votes in the U.S. Congress. You cap the spending so there's real tight discipline on it. And you give states an incentive to actually cut the size of the program. Again, one thing that was a really crucial change that happened is that welfare reform went from having a work requirement to having a work requirement or caseload requirement. You could be fulfilling your duties as a state even if you weren't getting people to work so long as your caseloads were going down. And that creates a clear incentive to just not let people get the program, not have many offices where you can sign up for welfare, like not have good people in those offices. And these ideas have become so pervasive in the current debate about Medicaid yep. that I think it's actually a space where if we end up with a Republican administration, like you could see some very, very significant changes that would kind of take Medicaid 
down like a lot of these paths. We, we've actually seen like a lot of Republican thinking on Medicaid over the past few years because of the Supreme Court decision making the expansion of Medicaid optional under Obamacare. So you see a lot of administ- a lot of Republican governors going to the Obama administration saying, we'll expand if you let us do X, Y, or Z. So it's actually been an interesting time to like learn about what Republicans would like to do with Medicaid when they're in charge. And one of the things they just constantly circle back to again and again are work requirements, that a lot of states really, really want to add work requirements. So if you're going to get Medicaid, you're going to be after doing some kind of work. Um, actually, just this week, Matt Bevan in Kentucky has said he's not going to continue their Medicaid expansion unless he's allowed to add a 20-hour per week, either community service or work requirement, which is under the Obama administration's understanding of Medicaid completely illegal, and they are not going to sign off on. But it gives you a window into what a Republican administration might look like. Right now, the Obama administration gets to set all the rules on, you know, what's okay in Medicaid, what can you charge for premiums. And they have said again and again, like work requirements are like not going to fly. But, you know, in a Republican administration, this is clearly a space that they're interested in going into and would really change the shape of Medicaid, which right now works as, you know, if you meet certain requirements, it doesn't really matter what you're doing outside of Medicaid, that you can get health coverage. And they've been pretty protective about, you know, some states have wanted to institute certain wellness requirements, like you have to come in to get certain things checked and you have to be showing improvement. And the administration has been very aggressive in pushing back not allowing those to go forward. Um, And my guess is the Kentucky proposal won't go forward. I imagine they work out some compromise where Kentucky keeps doing expansion. But it really gives you a window into how Republicans want to take these these ideas elsewhere. And it speaks to the way in which uh, at the core of this is when, when you're making compromises like this and thinking about how the compromises will be implemented, the question is like, what are the goals of the key stakeholders? There's a great line in this piece from one of the welfare experts who says, if the goal of welfare reform was to get rid of welfare, we succeeded. If the goal was to get rid of poverty, we failed. And I think that there was one group of welfare reformers who really wanted to get rid of poverty, and that ended up not working out. Then there were a group of people who really wanted to get rid of welfare, and that really did work out. I mean, we really have shrunk that program dramatically. And I think that one of the lessons here going forward, and one of the reasons you see you know, Republicans wanting to take this to other programs that they would like to see shrunk dramatically, while Democrats are trying to figure out some way of doing universal child, child allowance, doing uh, you know more refundable tax credits, doing whatever, is that the, you're actually seeing the split of these two objectives, like an anti-poverty objective versus like a, like let's get some of these government programs back under control, uh, you know, in, in one view objective. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's, it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors or sweeteners. So you can feel OK about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things 
in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because Naturebox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com weeds. I do think this business with Medicaid is worth dwelling on a, a little bit because I think that as long as you were talking about AFDC or even if you're talking about food stamps and you're talking about uh, the idea of work requirements of different kinds, I think that you could make a reasonable argument for the conservative viewpoint that you know these programs are in some sense crowding out work and that as a question of values, it is important to have people participating in the labor market and, and working in, in a reasonable way. And I think um, Arthur Brooks from AEI writes about this in a sufficiently eloquent uh, way that you, you could believe that he believes it and that this is being advanced in, in good faith. Um, but it's insane to believe that there are people in the state of Kentucky or anywhere who are choosing not to work so they can get free medicine when they become sick. It's not that. And there is actually economic research on this point that you do see a bit of employment crowd out. So I just want to say it's not as insane. as I'll put it in show notes. But you actually do see – I think it's like a value judgment, right? Like, But you definitely do see there is slightly less inclination to work when you have health insurance from the state. So I was going to say, it's not as insane as you're, as you're initially framing right. it. I think, I'm, I think, I'm rolling my eyes I think a little bit. I think the key of this question, like the, the place where a lot of this resolves around is what is the labor market like? Um, because like what people are making here is not choices between work and not work. It's choices between, well, the first is question is, can they get a job? And the second question then is what kind of job can they get and what are the costs of getting that job? So it may be that you can get a job, but because of how much it costs to live in the city where the jobs are, you have a 90-minute commute by bus and you have two kids at home. And the job is a pretty low-wage job with inconsistent scheduling. And, and I've had this, this specific discussion with Arthur Brooks. You can go back to the interview I did with him on, uh, on this show, On the Weeds. And I think that a lot of people look at a job like that and if they can possibly avoid having that happen, if they can possibly avoid that being their reality, like doing a job with terrible scheduling, with a terrible commute that takes them far away from their children who maybe need a lot of their support and help, like they make that choice. So I, I agree, sir. I think there is evidence of some crowd. I don't think it's crazy that some people would choose to not work if their work options are bad and they're able to get like the bare necessities provided for for their family. The place where I agree with Matt is that the decision is not made gleefully. People are not sitting there being like, haha, I get baseline level healthcare coverage and like some food stamps and I can really live the high life now. It's a shitty decision between shitty options. And I really do think this is where you get back to questions like guaranteed jobs programs, right? If we had a guaranteed jobs program, well, then you would separate people out. Like if they literally will not work, 
for some reason versus they would. But I think in in the much more imperfect circumstances we actually have people in where they oftentimes live in areas with very few jobs, where they can't live near the jobs, where they can't afford childcare. Like I don't think I think that the work not work choice puts it in very weird terms. Like people's lives are much more complicated than that. And work is a concept that can have very different meanings in terms of the quality of life it affords you. And your home circumstances, I mean, if you are dealing with a parent with dementia, if you're dealing with a child with learning disabilities or um, developmental disabilities, I, I think that we, we're often, that the work non-work puts us in a very unsympathetic place often. I, I think that there is a real question around labor market attachment in different kinds of communities. I, I take this seriously and I take it, I, I think, you know, more seriously than than some uh, some, some liberal people do because we're, we're talking on some level, I think, with, with all these things about the health, not the literal healthcare health, but the like vibrancy of communities in America, right? That the, I, I think that the sort of thinking person's concern about how AFDC was working was not that you had individual families that were being supported on, on welfare, but that you had like areas of cities in which non-work had become some kind of norm, you know, kind of thing. And and you have like push and pull to these kinds of things. But redirecting money toward the idea of helping people find jobs, you know, is reasonable. And then you have some like program design issues and and, and a lot of different different problems that, that arose there. But I, I do think that the distinction that Bill Clinton drew and that mainstream Democrats drew at that time and, and draw now between particularly health care and cash, to, to me, seems very meaningful. Um, you know, you have this sort of contested space with, with the food stamps, which, you know, are not cash, but are sort of, they're close enough to cash that, for example, you can sell food stamps and get money for them. I think you would find it really difficult to sell Medicaid on the <laughs> on the open market. Right. Um, pe- people don't people don't just like want health care in a way like I like groceries. Like I would I would take more. Um, and you know, and so I, I really do think that there is a divide to an extent and to an extent a divided mentality among conservatives about these things of to what extent do they just want to not spend as much money on different kinds of programs versus to what extent do they want to use the welfare state to promote a like conservative vision of a bourgeois society? And at times they find moments like when the labor market is robust, they find a way to make these things all go together. Um, but they struggle conceptually at times of, of weak economy or when they're dealing with the most in-kindy of in-kind programs to really think about like, well, is cutting people off from basic health screening, like is that really going to get everyone on a track to career success or is it just going to get people eventually on a track to like chronic health problems? Even if you do generate five more hours a week for for six guys uh, at, the, at the Burger King or, or something like that. Um, the difficulty of the whole thing is that actually getting people everything that they need to work full time on a sustained basis, childcare, transportation, skills, training, placement, relocation, you know, whatever it is, mm-hmm. is much more expensive yeah. than just mailing out checks. And, you know, the way we arrange our politics, the kind of people who are most inclined to be like morally offended by the idea of people not working are also the people who are most likely to be offended by the idea of spending a lot of money on a government program. All right. I think we should move to uh, the Supreme Court. Yes. Yes. 
Let's do it. Okay, so the Supreme Court today handed down a incredibly important non-ruling in which they said that they were split four to four on the appeal of a circuit court decision. The Obama administration did this big series of executive actions on immigration that provided semi-permanent deportation relief to several million people who were living here illegally and was going to create a process by which they could get work permits. So they were going to be able to uh, not just sort of stay in the United States but get uh, get a legal job and get the things that come with a legal job. That it, It's often very challenging in America right now if you're, if you're living in, and working illegally to get a bank account uh, because you can't get proper bank account. You're uh, just disadvantage in a lot of financial transactions. You can't get a small business loan. You can't get a mortgage, things like that. So Obama was going to deliver an enormous amount of sort of concrete material assistance to uh, long-term unauthorized residents of, of the United States. Um, this struck a, a lot of people at the time as a, at a minimum a um, – Violation of the norms around which this kind of executive authority had been had been used in the past. It, it it had been done several times before, but normally in pursuit of I think what you would call a foreign policy goal rather than immigration policy per se. So um, the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations did something similar with refugees from the Cuban Revolution, but it was a relatively small group of people, and it was closely linked to to, to the. And, Cold and there was War. clear congressional opposition. Like th- this is something they could have tried to pass through Congress, but could not get. Passed. Right, right, right. And another difference. Like you would see this in end run around Congress. Right, it wasn't an emergency measure. Right. So Eisenhower had a bunch of people showing up, and rather than go through, I mean, it, it was an underround, but it was yeah. like rather than go through the fuss and muss yeah. of writing laws, was like, here's what we're going to do. And then people came back, and I think four or five years later, some legislation was passed that basically ratified what what he had done. Whereas Obama like went through a whole legislative fight lost and then was like, well, here's here's my backup plan. So a circuit court ruled that this exceeded Obama's authority and put a stay on the whole program. And then immigration advocates uh, sued, uh, went up to the Supreme Court, um, where I think they had been made cautiously optimistic that either Kennedy or Roberts would side with them, in part because these guys tend to take a a more expansive view of of executive authority. Kennedy, I think people kind of squinting at it, just thought might be ideologically sympathetic. Um, We don't know exactly what the the breakdown was on this, but one's guess is that it's the normal 4-4 split uh, that that you would anticipate. Um, With both Roberts and Kennedy voting with with, Thomas and Alito. Yeah, with with Thomas and and, and Alito. Um, But there's no decision because they didn't decide anything. So it's a little (laughs) difficult to say exactly what what everyone was thinking. So this throws the whole program into a weird kind of limbo because – Hillary Clinton on the campaign trail had made promises to immigration advocates to do some like new orders that would go beyond what Obama had done. So what Obama – Obama says that what he did maximizes his legal authority for sort of obvious political reasons. Hillary wanted to be able to say that, no, there's more stuff that I'm going to do for you because – 
that's how you make campaign promises. Um, but it now puts her in the situation where even if she appoints a successor to fill the vacant seat, at least in a technical sense, she can't just do the exact same thing all over again. She's going to need a, like a different set of legal memos that maybe say something else and have a different kind of policy. Now, in practice, she may just sweep all this under the rug and redo the exact same things uh, with with a new judge. Um, it's better, I guess, for liberals to have this 4-4 deadlock than an actual 5-4 decision that they need to ask for reversal of. But it also raises the prospect that you will have uh, new lawsuits in other federal circuits where they think the judges may be more sympathetic to the, to the immigrants' side of this case. Um, it would be very odd to have a circuit. You have circuit splits sometimes, but usually on sort of arcane legal questions, not on sort of basic issues about whether millions of people are allowed to live and work in the United States. Um, immigration policy is not localized in, in that kind of way. Uh, but it, when you don't have a functioning Supreme Court, these are the things that happen. I, I think that the the one question I had about this going forward is to what degree this shows a strategy that will be an interesting strategy until the next president can name a judge. And maybe that's going to come so quickly, right? Maybe they really will be able to just get it through the Senate and, and whatever. But if there's an extended open seat on the Judah, on the Supreme Court, you know, the strategy of choosing your circuit court to get a ruling you want and then like being pretty certain you can get a tie because in some ways, you know, I think that one thing that we know is psychologically significant in the Supreme Court is oftentimes Roberts or Kennedy or, or all of them, they don't want to make huge new laws, but a tie doesn't do anything, right? A tie is a way to not have the program go forward, but also not create precedent where the, you know, the whole thing is is blown up and, you know, maybe other things you care about are, are all of a sudden destabilized. It, it creates, I think, an interesting question of what is the game theory of an extended eight-person Supreme Court. Well, and what happens if you're an immigration advocate at this point? Like, what is your play at this point? Because I think what you want to do is, like, like, go to another circuit and, like, try and work your way up through there. But you're only working with, like, seven or eight months until a new administration, which kind of, like, throws things into flux a lot. And I think this is the first case we've seen – that where the 4-4 split is like very significant and like it really where we'll see people reacting to this decision in ways that are very different than if we'd had like a 5-4 either way. And I think it'll be interesting to see like if you're immigration advocates, do you just kind of give up, say like it didn't work and like start plotting out how you would, you know, what you want from Clinton, um, you know, presumably as the candidate they're supporting and like what you would like to see from her administration or do you, like, really throw your efforts in trying to save this? And knowing, you know, if you do end up with, like, a Trump administration, these executive actions are essentially, like, out the window in, in January. So it's possible you're fighting for something that is, you know, about to be put on the chopping block. It, it, this also puts Obama personally in his least favorite position in the whole immigration debate, which is that as the president of the United States, he is – responsible for the execution of the laws. In a practical sense, the American government is enormous and consists of a lot of diffuse bureaucracies that have their own independent agents who have civil service protections. And he can't he can't like really make people do things like on a day-to-day -day basis in the way that the boss of a small business could. And 
the bureaucracies have their own sort of like autonomous logic. And the people who do immigration enforcement professionally in the United States, they really enjoy rounding up and deporting unauthorized immigrants. Like that's their job, you know? And so all these different times over the years when Obama has tried to be like, hey, guys, you know, if the cops pick up like a murderer, another violent felon, like process those guys. But let's not go looking too hard. You know, is someone in the dry cleaning shop somewhere not have papers? They don't follow that directive. They keep doing their thing. They really believe in immigration enforcement and in uh, semi-random deportation as a deterrent, that it, it encourages self-deportation, discourages other people from coming here and, and moving here. So Obama winds up taking crap from immigration advocates whose side he is ostensibly on because all these people are getting deported. And he's taking crap from the Border Patrol unions because he's constantly telling people to not do their jobs. And it's very awkward. It's very difficult. And having a formal administrative program that's going to say, these people who meet this program eligibility are going to apply at this office. If they apply at this office, they're going to get a special little piece of paper. The piece of paper says you're not going to deport them, right? That's a bureaucratically tractable way of running the immigration enforcement apparatus in a way that is consistent with Obama's stated values. Um, what he's left with is this situation where like they're obviously not going to deport everybody. He doesn't have the Trump deportation squad that's going to round up 11 million people and, and dump them somewhere in central Mexico. Uh, but he also doesn't have like a program to delineate who does what. So you have a bunch of different offices, you have a bunch of different people, like different shifts, mid-level commanders, prosecutors, everybody making decisions that Obama is on some level accountable for. He He's the president. He can't just come to community meetings and be like, I don't know, man, I have no authority over these people because like he does. But the courts are telling him like, well, you can't use the authority like so explicitly as to really make this work, right? So it's like, it, this is a nightmare and he's going to be very happy that he is not running for re-election. Um, conversely, it's great for Hillary Clinton who can now just be like, so you guys really have to vote for me. I'm going to appoint a new Supreme Court justice. <laughs> I'm going to stop this bullshit deportations Obama's doing, right? Like it's it's really easy. Whereas in a way, if Obama's thing had gone forward, it would have put Clinton in the awkward position of saying she's going to do more stuff, but it's not clear how. Whereas now she has like very clear deliverables. It is impossible to imagine a situation in which given what we tend to think we know about Hispanic election turnout – where the stars could be aligning more favorably for Hillary Clinton to get a huge, huge, huge Hispanic turnout. Donald Trump, this immigration decision. I mean, there, there's really a lot here. Now, maybe we're wrong about what drives that kind of turnout. But yeah, I think you're right that from a political standpoint, this is sort of the ideal situation for her. And that from a legal standpoint, I think this is like one chapter in like a larger set of rulings from the Supreme Court lower courts. We've been having like really a big discussion about executive power. A lot of it has been around, you know, the part I know best is around the implementation of Obamacare, where you have a number of lawsuits about, you know, what is the administration going beyond its executive power? You had you have one coming up through the lower courts right now where you could see this kind of ruling possibly, you know, coming into well, I guess there isn't a ruling, but you could see the Ninth Circuit coming into um into effect as some precedent where you have a debate over 
is the administration stepping outside their executive authority by giving away this money that the congressional Republicans charge? Well, we never authorized you to spend this money on a particular Obamacare program. So I think it's definitely one of the kind of defining fights in the courts and, I mean, also in politics about Obama's use of executive power, which you know, has kind of come out of an era of polarization with you know little congressional action since like 2010, 2011, that you really see a body of, of you know, legal work and jurisprudence kind of shaping out what executive authority looks like, you know, how far the president can go in this lawsuit and lawsuits that have happened before and in some of the, the last round, or I won't say the last round, the most recent and possibly last round of Obamacare lawsuits testing out, like, how far can the administration go implementing the law? Yeah, you never want to say it's the last round of Obamacare no, lawsuits. No, it's certainly not. Yeah, so we have, uh, we have a great research paper of the week that deals with Obamacare from uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Urban Institute that kind of the big thing to know from it, they estimate in, in the 2014 to 2019 period, the United States is going to spend $2.6 trillion less dollars on health care than we had thought when Obamacare passed. So it's just been this like... So really, that is more than the, co- the, the scheduled cost of the entire program in that period. I be- yes. Yes, I believe so. Yes, like um, that's a crazy. So, so if cra- you, so if you had, I, I mean, but I think this. If is, you yes. had said this in 2010, like, like people, would not have like people, like nuts. I would have laughed at you. But, right. right, and also if if you had gotten the CBO to say that this would right. be the result of Obamacare, then instead of the tax hikes on the rich, you could have had a modest tax cut on the ridge, it would have been deficit neutral. It would have gotten 99 votes in the Senate because Republicans love tax So cuts. one thing I want to yes, point out I, is that this yes. is not the result of Obama. No, no, no. I, 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 I understand. Okay. But, it's just, yes. but it's just if you – I just don't want say, us to say yes. that's the result If you were to say this is like the future we are looking at, sure. Like I this mean, is the future knows, where Obamacare right? I mean, lives. You know, they're, they're, like, they, let, they don't let me, do metaphysics. Let me, let, me put this, let me put this another way. In the 1990s, Bill Clinton was – governing in the aftermath of the Cold War. And so we had this thing that we began calling the peace dividend, where we thought we were going to spend all this money, you know, on our armed forces and on keeping shit tons of troops in different places. And now the idea was like, we had some money we could do some other things with. I mean, we could put it on the deficit, we could invest a bit. And if you had had this discussion, if you had said, hey, look, like over the next X years, Healthcare spending is going to be much, much, much lower than we thought. We have like $2.5 trillion to work with that we didn't think we had or $2.6 trillion. Um, like maybe we could use that to spend to like create this new universal healthcare program. Like that would have been a way you could actually think about it, right? Like Obamacare pays for itself and, and over time more than pays for itself. But the context in which Obamacare was passed was a context in which we thought like healthcare prices were rising really sharply and and unaffordably, and it turned out to be like the actually the opposite. Yeah. So we had. So I, I think it's helpful to kind of talk about like, well, why is this happening? Like, yeah. what has played out differently? Why than is we, it happening? Well, that's, that's <laughs> a great question, Matt. So you know, one of the things is about 
coverage is about. So the Medicaid expansion we actually talked about earlier, you have less people being covered through the Medicaid expansion because it was made optional. So I think it's about like 8 million less. Um, and I should get my agencies right. These are not CBO projections. These are CMS projections, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Um, yeah, you don't want those emails. I know. I know. I know I'm, <laughs> yes, I actually I screwed it up in the original article in all full disclosure, which I'm being absolutely clear here that we're talking about CMS and not CBO. Anyway, so you so some of it is coverage. And like for some people, that might be a bit of a sad story where like you want more coverage. It's a bad sign that you're spending less because fewer people are getting coverage. But the majority of the story isn't that. The majority of the story in Medicare, which covers older American and in private insurance, is that we're just spending less per person than we thought we would. One of the stunning numbers in this was that right now um, in this period we're talking about 2014 to 2019, we're going to cover... 700,000 more Medicare beneficiaries for less than we had expected six years ago. So we're covering, I think it's like 1.2 billion less. So we're covering more people. Like we're, there's 700,000 more people on Medicare than we expected, but we're spending 1.2 billion less on them. Understanding, you know, why that happened, I think is a really hard question. Some of it has to do with the, like kind of a hangover from the, from the recession, which drove down healthcare prices a little bit, but really shouldn't have actually had that much of an effect on Medicare. Some of it might be Obamacare. Like some of it might be these programs in Obamacare that um, penalize readmission. So if you have an unnecessary readmission to a hospital, you don't get paid for it. And that might be, you know, changing hospitals' behavior or just changing, you know, what we're spending on these readmissions. And then you have the private insurance side where it actually feels like as a consumer kind of like a shitty story about healthcare savings because most of the ways we're having savings is that we're asking um, patients to pay more. So we're saying your deductibles are going up, your co-pays are going up, and pretty much everything we know about health insurance suggests that when you make people pay more, they use less of it. They use less unnecessary care. They use less necessary care. So there's a whole kind of basket of things happening. Some of them like feel really good, like we're saving money in the right way, and some of them feel like we're saving money by not covering people, and some feel like we're saving money by like asking people to use less healthcare, but it's all working together for less healthcare spending. And, and I think that the real long-term import of which set of explanations is correct is, is it drives whether or not these savings will persist. Mm-hmm. So we do know, um, compared to where we were, say, two years ago, healthcare spending growth is rising again. Yes. Uh, the pace of healthcare spending growth is rising again. Now, one of the arguments made in this report is that it is not rising by as much as we mm-hmm. thought it would rise. Right. Well, it's really hard to talk about healthcare yeah. spending because you're always talking about differences and increases, right? right. You're, you're so it's not, like slower than expected. It's not going sl- down, but slower than expected yeah, growth. It, so we expected it to go up by... <laughs> Try and write a headline about this. Yeah, right. like we every expected now and then. growth to go up by a lot, and instead it's going up by less than we expected. But, it, it, but yeah. accelerating. No, it's not. No, no it's not. It's <laughs> accelerating by less than we thought. Well, no, now it is. So, no, the growth is decelerating. I don't think. Is the growth. Be, oh, it is decelerating off, the growth, of, the growth, off of the one time the Obamacare price, spike. Anyways, this sorry, is right, yes. we're down a rabbit hole. Okay. Now. To pull, the third pull derivative out of, of velocity <laughs> is known as jerk. Uh, and the change so in the, the rate of acceleration is jerk. So there you go. So, so the, thing that, um, the, the thing that we don't really know is what does this look like over the 10, 15, 20 year time period? Are we – one of the interesting um, mechanisms is identified in the paper. I, I am not convinced just looking at the possibilities that there is anything directly in Obamacare – that accounts for very much of this. I think the things in Obamacare are probably helping, but they are marginal. What 
is important, though, we saw this a little bit in the 1990s, um, and I think we're seeing it again in a more persistent way, is that Obamacare and, and particularly a lot of the payment reform policies that we see in Obamacare, but they don't get as much discussion as they should, although there was an excellent episode of The Weeds a few weeks ago on accountable care organizations. Oh, right. I remember that one. Um, yeah, that was good. I listened to it because I, I was not here for it and I learned a lot. Um, there, A lot of these things, they send a, a sharp signal throughout the market and they send a signal to insurers, to device makers, to pharmaceutical um, players about where things are going. And these players trying to account for what they think the environment is going to be like, they begin making changes. The hospitals begin making changes. I mean, culture, even within industries, is really important. And whether you think things are going to be flush in the coming years or they think they're going to constrict or you think the money is going to come from doing something different than what you've been doing, for big organizations making long-term plans, which is what a lot of these players are, it really matters. And, and something that the report talks about a bit and that anecdotally from my reporting I've heard is going on a lot is that a lot of healthcare players really think things have changed. And so in terms of how they run their hospital, in terms of how they run their insurer, they're really changing things for a world in which they think they're going to be uh, paid more on value, in which they think that things that can be classified as waste are going to become very dangerous to their bottom line. Um, and just a world in which they think things are just going to get a little bit tighter in different ways. And so that stuff I think actually matters. I think if you're going to say like what is the best thing Obamacare has done, in the 90s there's a lot of evidence this effect happened too, but then Clinton Care didn't pass. And so People like didn't have to worry that all these new strictures were going to come into effect. Now Obamacare really did pass and there are a lot of actually pretty sharp cost reduction mechanisms that are yet to go into effect like the excise tax um, on high value health insurance. Like, if it goes into like effect. Like if, if it goes into effect. IPAB like hasn't IPAB, gone into effect. which hasn't come into effect, which is the Independent Payment Advisory Board, which would mainly work through yeah. Medicare but would be very important for hospitals and doctors. And so I think a lot of players in the healthcare industry are looking forward and saying we need to figure out out how to get lean and that that could actually be having a right. real effect and I, so I, But I do want to pick up. So I think what you're saying is Obamacare like does – I know you started off saying like Obamacare – Yeah, direct mechanisms in Obamacare yes. I don't think are, are playing the role yet. But I – see, I might disagree a little bit on that point just looking at this particular report because one of the things that's so stunning to me is this reduction in per-person Medicare spending. Like part of that – is likely a result of um, the population of Medicare like getting a little bit younger. You have like baby boomers aging onto it, but it's like a pretty significant decline. And like the big thing that happened between those old projections and the new ones is that you had dozens of Obamacare programs that reduced Medicare reimbursements come into effect. And a lot of other places in healthcare, you can tell a story about the recession and that like depressing people's healthcare use, but Medicare should be like pretty recession recession proof yeah, you have like definitely. a lot of people on fixed income so i and because of like some of these spillover effects you're talking about it seems to me that you know some of the delivery reforms of obamacare like i can't pinpoint them and like say like that's the one but it, it strikes me as a plausible explanation for like a decent chunk of what's happening. You know, something I, I, I'd like to point to on this is if you if you fire up your uh, your Fred app from from the St. Louis Federal Reserve and you look at the the data series on total spending on healthcare construction. What do you want a medal here? What are you, what are you going for? <laughs> it's awesome. This it's, is this is serious. Have you fired up your Fred app cred. as we were just talking I, about I, I, delivery I was, system I was, reform? I was rechecking and it you know it's <laughs> it's not a very 
long data series. Uh, but starting in the in the aughts, it's going up, up, and away. Um, the house building market peaks in 2006, but it keeps going up. The economy slides into recession in late 2007, but it keeps going Healthcare up. construction. Healthcare construction. Yeah. Then it reaches a peak in October 2008, and it begins to fall. It falls through the rest of the recession era. Then it keeps falling a little bit post-recession, and then it's been bouncing around ever since 2010 or so at a at a much lower level than its peak, right? So someone somewhere deep in the bowels of like the not medical part of the healthcare industry, the like really just like how much money do we have became much less bullish about the idea that there was going to be that like it made sense to build tons and tons of healthcare facilities exactly when Obama was elected president and they have retained that more restrained outlook right and that is not clearly not about a provision of Obamacare there's nothing in there telling you to like not build hospitals or like don't worry as much about expanding the doctor's office for the next giant machine you're going to want to roll in here four years time um but it's related to the sort of larger political climate, I think. I mean, healthcare is so tied in with the the political system in so many different ways. And it, it seems like people started to feel that the money like isn't going to be there. So they're not building the literal stuff to support. I like gigantic expansion of, of the healthcare economy. And that matters. Um, like there's decent research showing like, you know, it's kind of like an if you build it, they will come. Healthcare, yeah, you know, definitely. we sometimes think of healthcare as like in a lot, like like you get healthcare when you need healthcare, but they're actually. It seems like once you build all this stuff, like you will find a way to get people to use it. So it does seem like at least somewhat plausible that like all of this is kind of tying together. And like when you have like one less proton beam therapy center, you know, you have less people getting proton beam therapy. Right. I mean, we're we're getting by, and it, you know what'll be interesting. I mean, for real health researchers to look at is like, are we suffering, right, in some yeah. meaningful way, right? Have we, are, are we becoming like healthcare deprived, right? And that's another way of, you know, the, the high deductibles and, and that kind of stuff is like how patients experience it. But from a macro level, it's like, okay, we were adding square feet of hospital at a pretty rapid per capita a clip and we're like not anymore but the population is aging people as far as i can tell are not well they're smoking less but like it's not obvious that you know we don't need it and so you know what are we coming out like are we doing a good job of like getting by with with less or with whatever back when we were talking about acceleration you know or is there like sure, a problem? i think you called yeah. it or, or is there a problem right like are people not you know, in a properly socialist system, right? Like this is this is a very explicit trade-off. People will say, oh, the wait times are too long. And then someone else will say, let's fix that by building more hospitals. And someone else will say, well, no, I don't want to spend that money. In America, the same basic trade-offs between like spending and capacity exist, but the exact mechanisms by which they happen are a little opaque and unclear. And we're going to have to, um, you know, really look back over time and see like, are people, do we not have enough hospital beds? Like, are people sick or is everything fine? And we've just like used our resources on, you know, iPhones. Well, we'll check back in. Yeah. <laughs> Next decade on Next the weeds. Yeah. <laughs> 2026. Surely on the, the show will not be going that long. But it may if 
you like us on iTunes and other popular podcasting platforms. Purchase an ad. You really love us. Yes, exactly. Share our podcast on Facebook or Twitter or WhatsApp or Ello. Or even just email. Email just spam everyone in your in your uh, mail. Box. I don't think it's spam. It'd be a welcome email. <laughs> yes, people will love it. People will love just it. Title it jerk. So thank you all for listening. And thanks. you should listen to my other show, the Ezra Klein show. Don't listen to that show. Um, and, and, <laughs> and thanks, thanks to our sponsors and uh, of course our, our producer, Fim Shapiro. Uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs> Good, uh, good weeds, everybody. Yeah, nice. yeah.